Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Episode 90 of Suncast. And became even more passionate about it, having a young son and, and wanted to be able to look at him, you know, in 20 years or 30 years and say, hey, I, I did what I could to make this a better place and, and to reduce my carbon footprint and hand you a cleaner environment. That's really what drew me to solar. This is Suncast. In every battle, there's a front line. On that front line are warriors whose courage and action shape the outcome of the battle. The world is currently engaged in a literal power struggle, a battle in global energy as it evolves from fossil fuels to renewable energy. Suncast is a conversation with solar warriors on the front lines, building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. We learn their secrets to personal and professional growth, market development, and industry insights. And now, join solar industry veteran, Latin America fanatic, and your host, Nico Johnson. Hey, solar warriors, and welcome to episode 90 of Suncast. Can hardly believe... We're at episode 90. Pretty soon we'll be at 100. Pretty soon we'll be at 1,000. I'm your host, Nico Johnson, and I'm so glad to have you back with us again for another episode. Every week, Suncast brings tomorrow's clean tech leaders the insight and ammunition you need to carry you through your daily battles. Thanks for tuning in and get ready for your weekly mental tune-up. If you're a regular listener, I really am honored to have you back. Are you a new listener? Well. Equally grateful to have you with us as well. Please be sure to check out some of the other amazing interviews with solar leaders that you might recognize, like Jigger Shaw, Dan Sugar, Ed Fio, and a bunch of folks that, while their name might not be so front and center or in the news, they are doing amazing things in our industry. This week, the show is coming out a little later than anticipated, but I'm squeezing it in there so that you can at least. Enjoy a Suncast episode over the weekend. Next week, we will have two more exciting episodes coming. Tactical Tuesday is going to dig into the Solar Module Reliability Scorecard, which was just released by DNV GL at the SNEC conference in Asia last week. And on Thursday of next week, we are going to have Friedrich Larson, an expert in branding and marketing strategies for the retail energy industry. If you missed episode 86 or last Friday's Patreon launch, I'd like to invite you to consider joining the Suncast tribe. If you believe in the value of what Suncast brings to the world, please check out that episode and then head over to mysuncast.com and click on the Become a Member button to learn more. A special shout out to tribe member Frederick Rivolier up in Ontario, Canada. We're going to be opening up the private Facebook group that I have going for the Patreon members next week. And I am also toying with bringing the tribe members into my private Slack group. Some of you are already there because you were guests. And I congregate there with past guests of Suncast. I'd love your feedback, Solar Warriors. Do you use Slack? Would you prefer as a Suncast tribe member to have access to a Slack group? with the rest of your tribe members and the past guests of Suncast? Or are you more of a Facebook junkie? Please sound off either on Twitter or LinkedIn or, or just shoot me a message. I'm really genuinely curious to know. Well, 
Today on Suncast, we are demonstrating the value of being engaged in that Suncast community. Tristan Arian Larico is a dedicated listener to the show, and this episode, in part, was spawned from his reaching out to make suggestions for improving Suncast. But more than that, he really has a fantastic career story for those of you who might feel like you're not on the Jiggershaw or Dan Sugar trajectory. He's ascended to one of the top roles in his field, one where the majority of his peers have a PhD, and I think even many of his colleagues would be surprised to learn his formal education level. You see, it's not always about the degree and the titles. Tristan, like many of you, is an infinite learner, and he attributes that as one of his keys to growth and career success. Along the way, he and I discuss how having a family early in his life pushed this hustling kid entrepreneur into the corporate world and how his curious spirit and eagerness to grow has propelled him thus to be head of the solar module business unit for one of the most recognized engineering firms in the solar industry and arguably in any industry, DNV GL. Stay tuned as we discuss keys to evaluating your solar module suppliers, the top contributors to solar module degradation, the missing link to BNEF's Tier 1 solar module ratings, and lessons from an overly ambitious corporate exit by one young Tristan looking to get into renewables. Hey, I don't want you to think this whole episode is going to be only focused on solar module supply, but you should know, as you'll hear in the intro, that Tristan worked for Silfab and responsible for module quality and product quality and just knows a ton about that topic. I want you to hear the overarching theme that Tristan was able to arrive where he got to by being very intentional, but following the path of his passion and not being so focused on having necessarily the formal educational credentials as much as having the in-field experience. That is something that you can't replace. So I hope that you enjoy today's episode with Tristan as much as I enjoyed recording it. If you do, would you please consider subscribing to hear more episodes as they come out? Thanks again, Solar Warrior, for setting aside this time in your day, your week, your year. Time is the most valuable commodity that you could possibly extend my way. Please enjoy this week's episode of Suncast with Tristan Arian Larico. Today on Suncast, we're going to dive into a segment of the solar industry that we haven't touched on in a while, an area around quality assurance, solar module selection, third-party engineering. We've had a few guests talk about these topics, and so I wanted to go and grab someone who works at really one of the largest and most well-respected companies in the industry. So we've got Mr. Tristan Arian Larico. Did I say that right? Yeah. All right. <laughs> Tristan is with DNV GL, and he's worked in the solar and electrical industry since, uh, same as me, since about 2006. He was previously at a company that maybe some of you know. It's a company called Silfab Solar out of Canada. He was the head of product and quality there. Uh, Silfab is a major Canadian manufacturer, namely doing manufacturing for companies like Trina. When I was back at Trina, Silfab was doing the Trina modules for Canada. More recently, He's worked in equipment procurement, technical site ops, and two different IPPs in uh, Canada, focused on project assistance, if you will, in Canada, Japan, around the world, including the U.S. and some of Latin America. 
but most recently this year has joined DNVGL Energy Labs as head of PV module business. Hey, Tristan, it's great to have you on Suncast at last. Great to be here. Long time listener. Yeah, I'm, I'm honored to be on the show. Yeah, it's always great to have a listener on the show. And I just want to point out to those of you who may be here in the intro when I say, if you have a suggestion for a topic of a show or a guest, please reach out. Not only has Tristan been responsible for some of the folks who become guests on the show, but this interview today and a topic that'll be coming out next week are the brainchild of just spending some time with Tristan and thinking about what might the Suncast audience want to hear. So I'm really grateful for that. I'm grateful for Tristan as a listener reaching out and caring enough to say, as a listener, here's the stuff I think would be interesting. So just bear in mind, if you're listening now and you've got an idea, do reach out. It makes a difference. Rob Andrews of Heliolytics is a product of Tristan reaching out. We're listening to the most recent episodes. Josh Weiner came on because Tor Valenza is a friend of the show and asked if I thought that Josh would be an interesting interview. So one of the things that stands out to me, and we'll dig in a bit on the history of it, but Tristan and many like him, on the surface, if you talk to a guy like Tristan, he might say, you know, I'm not an entrepreneur. And Suncast, if you listen to or look at the interview roster, seems to be focused on getting CEOs and founders and entrepreneurs on the show and really digging in and learning how they've built their businesses. But underneath that, I really am interested, and I believe that you all are, in digging into how someone can craft their career. Some of you are entrepreneurs, some of you are entrepreneurs, but I think that if you're listening to this show, you're a hustler. Tristan is the embodiment of that. So we're going to dig into that today. Hey, Tristan, let's jump in around your interest in technology and electronics, because that's my understanding of kind of how you eventually wound your way into solar. Can you walk me through the path, perhaps non-conventional, that you've taken just to get to the solar industry? Yeah, so it's a weird one. As a kid, you know, I liked taking things apart and couldn't always put them back together as I would hoped they'd go back together and start working, but it was an interest of mine and, and something that my parents nurtured. I got really into music and became a DJ at a very young age and was DJing in bars well before I could legally be allowed to go into them. And then through that, tried to get into music production and recording and took a a one-year program on recording and really thought my trajectory was music. Then life threw a curveball and I had a son on my hands by the time I was 21, which is when most people are you know, on their way to graduation out of their their undergrad program. And for me at the time, I had to figure out, well, what am I going to do with my life? Am I going to continue trying to hustle at, at music or should I upgrade my education? So at the time I looked at what was available, this was in July, and I wanted to start school in September, looked at what was available and I saw an electronics technician program at the local community college. And I thought, oh, electronics. Well, I use electronics when I'm DJing. That should be a perfect fit. And didn't realize that by electronics, they meant math and then math and then math (laughs) and then math. And every course had a different name, but it was all math. And uh, it turned out I was pretty good at math. I got really good marks. And after that, that was a two-year program. I started working in the electrical industry in manufacturing. But during my time in electronics, I was really drawn to solar. I've been an environmentalist my whole life. I was raised, you know, to recycle and and respect the environment 
and saw that climate change was a huge problem on our hands and became even more passionate about it, having a young son and, and wanted to be able to look at him, you know, in 20 years or 30 years and say, hey, I, I did what I could to make this a better place and, and to reduce my carbon footprint and hand you a cleaner environment. That's really what drew me to solar. After I finished that electronic technician program, I got a job at Rockwell Automation, which is you know, one of the largest electrical supply companies in the world. In fact, uh, the term PLC is a Rockwell Automation patented term, or at least a coined term. So I had no idea. They're huge. And we were making electrical equipment that would ship to all sorts of different industries. But one of the main drivers for our business was oil and gas and shipping our products out to the tar sands in Alberta. And, you know, I didn't feel great about that going home at the end of the day. I wanted to, to have a job in renewables. And although I was learning lots and I was growing my, my career and, and taking on more and more levels of responsibility at Rockwell, it wasn't feeding my soul if you will. I took a, an evening course on PV and learned the basics of the technology and, and then read more and more up on it myself. And then I made a pretty fundamental error in my career. And I told my boss at the time that I wanted to step down as the department rep on the employee committee because I was going to get a job in solar and I was leaving the company but I didn't have a job yet. And it took me two years to find that job. So I was overly confident that I'd be able to, to get something right away. And that definitely changed my relationship with my boss because she saw me as someone that, that was you know, super motivated and was growing with the company and she was grooming me. And then I kind of pulled the pin out on that. But I thought it was kind of unfair for her to keep giving me levels of responsibility internally knowing that like my heart wasn't in it and I was going to leave. So, you know, maybe truth got the better of me. I shared too much with her at the time. But anyway, I applied for many different jobs. But with my manufacturing background, SoFab was the one that saw a good fit. You know, I love hearing the ways that folks navigate their careers. I think it's super interesting that you know, you're not the only one who's gotten out of his skis and said, I'm leaving, I'm going to go do something that's meaningful. And has forgone one or two years of career advancement in the job they had because they were over ambitious about how soon they could procure what they're looking for in the renewables or specifically solar industry. One piece of advice I think I hear you giving is if you're out there and you just know for sure that you're A, in a good place and have favor in your company, but B, it's not where your passion lies and, and you're being disingenuous to all of those above you by tending to want to climb the corporate ladder don't overshare, right? Like find your off-ramp. And this is traditional career advice, but find your off-ramp. But while you have the quote, the day job, if you will, if you're an entrepreneur, goes without saying, like try to start generating revenue if you can or raise money while you can, while you have a day job. You know, when I was at Trina, I heard the name Silfab and it could have been any mom and pop corner store. It didn't resonate necessarily in the, in the US market for me. Can you help put into perspective Silfab within the context of the Canadian solar market and at what roughly how big, how much of this Canadian market did you guys have at the height of the Ontario fit and everything? Yeah. So I guess Silfab is a story really connected to the Green Energy Act in Ontario, which the government brought in, I think in 
2009 or 2010, and it had really lucrative feed-in tariffs for wind and solar and other renewables. But as part of that, you needed domestic content. So they said, basically, we'll, we'll give you all this money for a feed-in tariff, but you need to source your modules in Ontario. You need to source your inverters in Ontario. Your labor has to come from Ontario. Your racking has to come from Ontario. All of it has to be made in the province or you get nothing. It wasn't that explicit, but basically that was the point of it. That brought in all these green collar jobs, if you will. And so Silfab was an Italian company. And the name actually Silfab was for silicon fabrication. Mm -hmm. And they were going to create a polysilicon plant in Quebec, where there's lots of hydro. This was at the height of the polysilicon cost. When it was at $400. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then the price dropped and they thought, well, what are some other opportunities? This Green Energy Act aligned pretty well with them looking at where should we go now? So they opened up a plant in Canada and I was one of the first, uh, there was a group of 15 of us hired first. The first group of us at Silfab flew over to their sister plant in Croatia and learned module manufacturing while staying in Croatia for a month and saw the equipment. You know, I learned how to solder the cells and how to lay up the modules by hand and saw how to make modules. And then we came back to Canada. We waited for the equipment to arrive. We sort of pieced together a, a manufacturing line while waiting for, uh, eventually it became pretty much a fully automated plant. But while we were waiting for those automated lines and the robots, I personally soldered the first Silfab module and picked it up and put it in the laminator and took it out of the laminator and helped remove the back sheet and EVA that overhangs and pass it off to my colleague to put on the frame and then flash test. And this is 2009, 2010 or later? We were a little late. This is 2011. So okay. at the time, you know, there was lots of module manufacturers came to Ontario to be part of this domestic content requirement, you know, the largest of which being Canadian solar. While you're going through this process, your first job in solar, what do you think are or some of the main things that you learned about solar that inform how you currently look at the market? How did it prepare you for what you're doing today in solar or how you view the solar market as a whole? I think I just learned a ton. Like I was, I was a sponge. And the great thing of this domestic content requirement was that manufacturers like Trina and other manufacturers who I don't know if I'm allowed to name, so I won't, yeah. but you know, some of the biggest, in, in fact, all of the biggest were interested in manufacturing in Ontario, but they didn't want to set up their own plant. And they all heard about Cellfab. They heard it was fully automated. They were all impressed. So they would all show up at different times. And I'd be one of the main guys they would speak to about technical things you know, comparing their quality control plan with our quality control plan, yeah. comparing their bill of materials with our bill of materials, their certification with our certification. So I got exposure to the best practices. Yeah. Speaking with, you know, five engineers that would spend a week from Trina, like ripping us apart, leaving no stone unturned, and then taking that and using that to create corrective actions and improve our own process. Yeah. And the next company would come two weeks later and, and they'd have a bunch of things to say. And, and then we'd have, you know, a bankability study from DNBGL or from Black and & Beach and they would show up and they'd, they'd nitpick things. And, and eventually over time, I became the, 
the product and quality manager. So, you know, I, I, I assumed that role and then eventually was actually given the, the title of the, the work I was doing. But the whole time I was learning about, you know, what makes a good back sheet? What makes a good cell? What makes good equipment? What type of quality control do you have to put into the line to make sure you have a 25-year warranty that lasts? I want to actually just put a pin in something that you just said that I feel like all too often folks who are rising in their careers are nearsighted about, especially in the solar industry where titles are handed out like candy. It's easy to say, not my job. It's easy to point to something you're doing and say, this isn't part of my job description. I deserve to make more money. What I heard you say is there was a role that needed to be executed on. It fell on me. Nobody else really was doing it or could do it. I embraced it. Did it for a long period of time and before I was actually recognized for what I was doing. That happens a lot, not just in product manufacturing. It happens in service development. It happens in O&M where you see a need, an opportunity, and, and you reach out and take it. And I find that one of the common threads of guests that I have on the show is that they tend to be action takers. They tend to be problem solvers and folks who stand in the gap and say, okay, I see that this area is underserved. I'm going to go do it. I'm not so concerned about the recognition, the recognition will come, right? Yeah, I'm not focused on the outcome, I'm focused on the activity. So I just want to, I guess I want to highlight that, commend you for that. It's a character trait that more folks ought to try and cultivate in their own work. Moving along from that to the idea of localizing manufacturing, there's a lot of buzz lately in the US with the Trump tariffs, et cetera, around, you know, namely Jinko and Hanwha recently just announced another announcement whether these are actually going to get built or not is, is yet to be determined. But as an installer or as a developer, I think that a common question ought to be, and I'd love your reflections on how folks approached this with Silfab and how you see this through the DMVGL lens now, but how do you know what you're getting? Talk to me a little bit about that process of validating not just the quality and criteria of a product that you might be buying from afar, from, from China, for example, Asia, but how do you know if you're getting the same or equivalent quality when someone like Jinko or Hanwha or Trina decides, I'm going to set up local manufacturing? That fast forwards a, a great deal to you know the role I'm in now as the head of PV module business at DNVGL Energy Labs. And we would say, and I, I believe this wholeheartedly, that you have to test the products off the new line or off the new you know, the new equipment and the different bill of materials. It, it's all about testing. Put your test report where your mouth is, if you will. I was just in China for SNEC and, and I had the fortune of being able to tour a number of module manufacturers while I was there. And they're constantly updating, constantly adding new equipment. And the production process flow that they had six months ago is not necessarily what they have now. And, you know, not to pick on Jinko, but their production in Vietnam or, you know, Southeast Asia, that is not the same as, as their production in China. I would hazard a guess that it's different equipment, it's different people, it's a different quality manager. It might be the exact same bill of materials, but do the people in Jacksonville know how to do a proper soldering peel test to prove that their stringer is soldering properly without potentially making hot spots as the people in China or in Vietnam? You know, that remains to be seen. And you don't know that unless you test the products. Okay. So as a developer, if I'm buying 
10 megawatts or uh, 500 megawatts, or in the case of S power in the next era, you know, one plus gigawatts. What are the key criteria that I really want to drill down on from a reliability perspective? And I'd follow on to that. This is tantamount to success of actually meeting the p-values that your bank report has said you're going to achieve on the production of a plant. So I think that it's appertinent to every solar project that's getting built from 10 kilowatts to 100 megawatts. So I'm really curious to understand from your perspective, but if I'm a developer, what are the things that I'm looking to really qualify? Like, is there a short list of four or five criteria? So you want to make sure that the, the factory has been vetted and the bill of materials have been vetted. Can you tell me what you mean by bill of materials specifically? So specifically, what cell are they using? What encapsulant? What backsheet? What junction box? What connectors? What frame thickness? What glass? What anti-reflective coating? You know, all of these things contribute to the product's, you know, long-term reliability. And people are buying modules to last at least 25 years, which is the, the standard warranty. But I've, I've heard of some developers trying to push a 40-year lifetime on their projects. Because, you know, the racking, the, the steel in the racking is going to last for 40 years. And a lot of the switch gear is going to last for 40 years. A central inverter is probably going to last for 20 years. So if you replace that halfway through, now you've got 40 years out of two inverters. The question is, how do I make my modules last for 40 years? So the bill of materials is a huge part of that. And then the other part of that is, is the factory and how do they put those bill of materials together? You can take a great backsheet and a great encapsulant. And if you have poor temperature uniformity in your lamination process, those layers are going to peel apart in five years, even though you bought the highest quality material. So how are you making sure that that's not going to happen? So then the question is, how do you vet those? And that's where, you know, the testing that DNVGL does comes in. And I clearly believe this and feel passionate about it, which is why I got this new role as the head of module business, because I can speak to it with passion from a manufacturer and also with passion from having done site operations where things didn't go so well and feeling the burn of, of modules that had major failures. You hear kind of two different qualifications of how someone buys either they're like, oh, just buy something off of tier one, be an EF tier one list, or it's tantamount to buying off your buddy, right? Like you just call around and you find out who's got the best deal, may or may not work for a module manufacturer, or maybe they're picking up B-sides from India, who knows. But can you help us understand the implications of what might be considered tier one or the risks of just applying a, a gross economic standard like that to the module procurement aspect in particular to how a project performs? I'll also add to your list, you know, they're buying because this module is half a cent cheaper than the other module. Of course. Yeah. Or alternatively, they're buying because these two modules are the same price, but this one performs half a percent better in PV cyst. So in our financial model, it's worth X amount more. So we're going to buy that one over the other one. So I would add, you know, those are the four, the four different categories of, of why some people purchase modules. So talking about tier one, it is just a financial statement, basically. And I haven't looked at it recently, but I believe it means that there has been six projects within the last two years or something that were six megawatts or more financed by six different banks with non-recourse finance. So BNEF is basically saying, 
a bunch of different banks invested in these modules, therefore they're bankable. It doesn't talk about the quality or the reliability. Now, I think BNEF a couple of years ago saw that that might be a bit of an issue, and now they've actually instituted on the more recent releases of the tier one list, there's a little asterisk beside the name of manufacturers that are doing product qualification testing at DNVGL. So it shows that these manufacturers are quality-minded and they care about the reliability of their products and the long-term performance of their products. Some developers say, well, instead of just buying on tier one list, I buy tier one with the asterisks. We would certainly encourage that mindset and it's probably the next step in due diligence, but you know, we'd say that you're not going far enough. I was mentioning before, there seem to be, and certainly at the large scale procurement side and for most of the distributed generation folks that are buying anything north of call it 10 or 20 megawatts a year, there are two approaches. One, it seems like they'll go to a DNV GL and make sure that there's some form of a certification or a product qualification test that's done. Or on the other side, if they have the wherewithal financially or they have a bank asking for it, they'll send in someone like Clean Energy Associates, Andy Klump and his team, to actually do factory audits. Can you differentiate between those two? Like, I feel like they kind of go hand in hand. They're potentially competing for business, but I want to make sure that we're clear on the differentiation between DNVGL and the service that you provide in product qualification testing versus a Clean Energy Associates that does what it's, it seems to me like mostly in-country audits and assurance of an acquisition of a product? We would encourage both, and we think we complement each other. So what we're doing with our product qualification program is we're trying to vet the bill of materials that are being used and the factory where it's being made. You know, is the equipment that they're using making good quality, and is their product design of high quality? But we're not saying now that we've tested 30 different modules for that, you can go buy 300 megawatts of it and it's going to be all good. There's something to be said for checking the product consistency. There's definitely something to be said for in your your module purchase orders, purchasing the bill of materials that we've tested and not letting a manufacturer slip in a less expensive, lower quality backsheet or you know, a, a new type of cell that hasn't been tested or, or whatever. Can you talk a bit about, I mean, certainly from your Silfab days, like the experience of things like the difference a backsheet can make and the difference other perhaps key elements can make in the overall performance of the module and reliability? Yeah, so specific to backsheets, they can crack. There's more and more field complaints and, and field issues of backsheet cracking. And eventually that crack will let moisture in and that moisture will wreak havoc on the module and the moisture could freeze or expand. And that's going to cause, you know, hotspots in the module. It's going to cause safety issues. The back sheet is not meant to be split open. Let's discuss a bit then some of the related field failures and degradation rates and warranty shortcomings that you have seen over the, not just their tenure at Silfab, but and at the IPPs, but now at DNV that help you actually sell your services. Talk to me a bit about what you see in the field. So I have my own field experience working at these, these IPPs. I haven't mentioned them, uh, Solar Power Network out of Canada, and then Sky Solar, which was a Chinese-based company, but also had a fairly large team in, in Canada. 
So I experienced my own field failures of, you know, poor soldering causing back sheet to burn, which caused the glass to break from the, the amount of heat being generated in a localized area. Diodes failing, causing, you know, a third or more of the module to become inactive. You know, frames becoming separated from the glass and the laminate and, and potentially allowing moisture to get in. In the industry and in, in various research, they see other issues, the browning of the EVA. You know, over time, the UV cooks away at the EVA. And I should mention the EVA is the encapsulant or the glue that holds a module together. So you have, yeah. you have glass and then a sheet of EVA, then the cells, then another sheet of EVA and the back sheet. And all of that gets laminated together and it should perform as one for yeah. the next 25 or as we mentioned 40. earlier, 40 years. Yeah. So if that EVA due to exposure to UV if that starts cooking it away, then it becomes yellow and it eventually becomes brown and less light can pass through and the module degrades faster than the probably 0.5 or maybe 0.6 or 0.7% per year that's in everyone's financial models. So I totally get how browning of the EVA will affect degradation. I think that's a really important one if folks haven't looked into the historical data around whether or not a manufacturer's EVA, like who they're using and, and the data around whether there's discoloration, because that will affect, as you said, one of the key criteria for year over year yield in your financial report. One of the other issues that we see in the field a lot is this idea of hotspots and snail trails. Can you give me an idea of how, if I'm a developer, I would identify and then root cause analysis, the hotspots and snail trails? So hotspots, you'd identify them, you know, if they're really bad, you'd identify them by walking the sites and seeing like brown marks on the cells that are hot. Looks like about a quarter size dime. Yeah, that where it's like a localized hotspot, but I've got pictures of back sheets where one cell was poorly soldered and, and that whole cell is brown on the back sheet. Going back to your episode with Rob at Heliolytics and you know, his technology, you can definitely see hotspots with infrared. It's probably easier to see them with infrared than visually. In terms of visual inspection, you know, the back sheet getting discolored due to a hotspot or even the cell being discolored where it got soldered due to hotspot, you can pick those up visually, but the hotspot has to be, you know, quite hot for that to happen. And you have to have pretty good eyes. You know, if you're going to a site let's say a 10 megawatt site, or even like a 700 kilowatt rooftop, you're going to look at the cells to see if any of them have hot spots visually. Like what a bad day that's going to be. <laughs> yeah, sure. And, and I think everything is moving away from visual inspection to some sort of robotic or aerial inspection. And it certainly leads to some of the other failures that we see. I think the snail trails are one that are really misunderstood outside of like the scientists in our industry. Can you talk a little bit about that, what they are, how they occur, and how your, perhaps your reliability testing could help avoid it? So basically a snail trail occurs where there's a micro crack in the cell. And what's happening is the back sheet is slightly porous. It's breathable. And trace amounts of moisture can go in to the module through the back sheet. And that's by design, in fact, because a lot of the encapsulants have acetic acid in them, and that acid has to you know, breathe out of the module or it's gonna cause corrosion over time. 
So what happens with certain bill of materials combinations is that that moisture comes through the back sheet, through the back layer of encapsulant, and through the micro crack in the cell and starts corroding the fingers on the front of the cell. And the fingers are the conductors that go across the cell and connect with the bus bars that go up and down the cell. So normally right. there's three bus bars. Historically, there was two bus bars. Now there's four, even five. You know, some people have nine or 12. But anyway, the bus bars go, go up and down. The tiny fingers that are less than a, a millimeter thick go even probably less than 0.1 of a millimeter thick these days. They go across the cell. So they're made of silver and just like your silver jewelry that they could corrode, basically the snail trails is a corrosion of that silver due to a chemical reaction between the moisture that got in through the back sheet and you know some chemical that's in the encapsulant or in the mm -hmm. EVA. There's a chemical reaction there. And now the micro crack that you would normally not be able to see without doing electroluminescence testing, you know, you can see it. You can see it in the form of this snail trail. Mm -hmm. And from my understanding, what the industry's thoughts are on this, or, or, you know, as of a couple of years ago, when I did more research about it, is that the snail trail isn't the huge issue. What's the potential issue is the micro crack. Is that micro crack causing power loss? The snail trail might cause slight power loss because those corroded connectors aren't as good as a conductor as they, they should be if they weren't corroded, it's really the micro crack that is more of the concern. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking here that when this was sort of, I'll call it a scare three, four years ago, there was a huge problem in one manufacturer in particular, a huge lot of their modules in Europe had these famous snail trails. And the question was, does it really matter? Is it just a blemish? Is it just a, a surface blemish? What I hear you saying is that the underlying problem of micro cracks is really what a snail trail foretells. And so it's not so much that simply having snail trails on panels on a site that you're going to have degradation issues, but it means that you're now going to have to dig a little deeper and understand if there are any root cause issues or historical problems with micro cracks from this manufacturer. More things to add to that. So it's really the bill of material combination is what causes those micro cracks to show. But if you don't have snail trails, you might still have micro cracks, and you probably do. You just can't see them because that chemical reaction, you know, the materials they're using doesn't cause that chemical reaction. So micro cracks are part of the industry. The cells that we're using are, are so thin, and they're basically made of glass. Again, Scientists will refute that, but uh, you can think of them as very thin, thin glass. Yeah, if, if you've ever held a cell in your hand and just tap it on a desk and see how easily it can break, essentially feels like glass. Yeah, I used to do that as training with installers. So I think manufacturers have gotten really good, you know, there's, there's a lot of control mechanisms in the manufacturing process to eliminate micro cracks. And I shouldn't say eliminate, I should say reduce micro cracks to an acceptable level. You know, any manufacturer telling you that they ship micro crack free modules, right. Right. ask them to show you their warehouse of modules with micro cracks or ask them, you know, how much do you sell your class B's for? Because you, you probably right. have, you know, a few of them for sale. So, yeah. you know, there's micro cracks that are going to cause power loss and there's other micro cracks that aren't going to cause power loss. And so manufacturers have an acceptance criteria. You know, they, they feel confident that 
any module leaving their factory with a micro crack will not affect long-term performance. And it turns out that a lot of the micro cracks actually happen in, in shipping. <laughs> and so a lot of the innovation has, has happened around shipping uh, processes. Shipping and then, you know, handling. In and field handling. Yeah, I never thought about that with the carrying the module. And I wish others could see the video of us talking, but actually being able to think about like seeing someone with the module on their head and they're walking, bouncing across the field with a module resting back sheet on top of a hard hat, which is a point load on the back of a cell, basically. Walking on the modules on rooftops. Not only that, but like resting on, leaning on, pressing on modules in the O&M process, in the cleaning process. I mean, it's a, we could go on and on. We could go deep down yeah. this rabbit hole, I think. You know, one of the things you said was the idea of micro crack free. And it reminded me one of the things that stands out for me about PV Evolution Labs and how, you know, Jenny and his team kind of got on the map was they were doing a lot of testing for Canadian. As I recall, maybe I'm missing the right module manufacturer, but they were the first to come out with this whole notion of PID, potential induced degradation, PID free, and created one of the early pieces of FUD and uh, sort of scare tactics in the marketplace. Not that it was unmerited, it was just something that they introduced a new way to think about the quality testing of a product for really what amounts to having the right BOM. You know, something that impressed me about how you basically have arrived at the top of your element of the game, head of the module business for DNV GL. No MBA, no PhD, not even a four-year degree, right? Just a technical degree. Talk to me a bit about how you swing that. Like, tell me a little bit about the mentoring process that got you where you're at today and how you can talk your way into a job that your, all of your peers have doctorate degrees. I think it comes down to following your passion and, and being a, a sponge and, and wanting to learn as much as possible and talk to people. You know, when I first talked to Jenya about wanting to make uh, Silfab modules PID free <laughs> or, you know, quote unquote, you know, PVEL certified PID free Silfab modules. And, and you know, I, I hit it off with him and we worked together. Silfab did testing at, at PV Evolution Labs. Now, of course, DMVGL Energy Labs. And we made a lasting impression on each other. And in fact, it came from when you do an episode with Jenya, hopefully he'll talk about his New York Times article where it had him you know, a big picture of him on the front of, I think, the business section looking at a module in, in his lab. And it was all on, you know, potential defects coming into the module industry and, and what PV Evolution Labs was doing about it. And at the time, the, the head of Silfab left that, that newspaper on my desk as the head of quality. And, you know, it, it just made a lasting impact reading that and thinking, you know, how do we make sure our products aren't, aren't being painted with this same brush? And, um, and, and, you know, got on the phone with him. And some people might think, oh, this, this guy is way above, he knows everyone in the industry. He's way above, you know, who I am, this, you know, relatively junior quality manager at a relatively small module manufacturer, but similar to doing this interview, you just reach out to the person and you talk to them. And if you're personable and you're passionate, you're both working in the same industry, you're, you're going to find, you know, things to overlap with. And, and that's basically what I've done since before I, I worked in solar. Eventually you establish a, a big Rolodex where when I got this job at DMVGL, my boss now is emailing some of the downstream partners that we work with. So those are developers, investors, 
EPCs, insurance companies, et cetera. And they said, oh, we've got this new head of PV module business. He comes from Silfab Solar. Didn't even say my name in the email. And a few people replied saying, oh, is that Tristan? He's a great guy. Because they had come to Silfab and audited me. And we, you know, we went out for lunch together. And I would just take so much from them in terms of you know, whatever they were talking about. Like, tell me about PID. Tell me about the snail trails you're seeing. Tell me about when you audit a different manufacturer, what you saw that you think, you know, would be good to take in. And, you know, I've, I've always just, just wanted to, to learn more and, and take on more. And I think that's the, the secret to me being in this role without, yeah. as you said, without an engineering degree, without a degree period, which I am working on, <laughs> but with three kids and now a very demanding job that has me traveling the world. Those plans might be delayed by a little bit, but uh, I'm chipping away at it slower than I was, but still, you know, still working towards it. But it hasn't been a hurdle. How have you sought out mentors and what were some of the key lessons or takeaways in your career thus far from your mentors? When we were kids, my, my parents had a bookstore. They were they're entrepreneurs. And I grew up, you know, with my dad, like pounding the pavement. You know, he was up at five in the morning going to the bookstore and doing ordering or doing whatever needed to be done. And, and he'd come home for breakfast. And luckily, we lived very close to there. And then he'd leave and then he'd come home for dinner and then he'd leave again. And it was, you know, just following his passion. And he would say, do what you love and the money will come. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how I've, I've lived my life. And then one of my brother's mentors when he was younger, kind of added to that and said, be the best at what you do and you can charge whatever you want. And so kind of combining those two things, that's sort of, if my brother listens to this, I'm stealing his, <laughs> his motto. Uh, but it, it, it works well, you know, be passionate and the money will come and be great and, you know, you'll be successful. You know, that's kind of how I found other mentors is, is just following, following my passions. And that results in you know, seeing other people that are, are passionate about the same things. I think also, you know, approaching people that, as I said earlier, might seem unapproachable for one, one reason or another. For example, last week at SNEC, I met Martin Green, University of New South Wales. And he basically, as Jenya said, because Jenya was with me at the time, if Martin Green didn't do the research that he did, none of us would have jobs right now. He's famously the mentor of the founder of SunTech and many other module manufacturers. And the research that they've done, I read an interview with him on the plane on the way back from SNEC. And he was talking about PERC and, you know, mono PERC and multi-PERC is where the industry is heading. And they were asking him the history of PERC. And he said, oh, I, I, I drew the PERC cell in, I think, 1981. So that's when it was invented. It was like, whoa, this guy. What did you just say? (laughs) Anyway, so he has way, way more education than I have. And and he's, you know, prolific in the industry. And and here I am talking to him about how he did his his PhD at a university that's not far from it was actually in in, at McMaster, which is a university in Hamilton, Ontario, not too far from me. And, you know, unfortunately. During that conversation, he didn't automatically become one of my mentors. You know, if I called him up, I don't know if he'd remember me, but I was able to have, you know, a personal conversation with him, you know, have him know me a little better and certainly know him a little better. 
I've done that with various people throughout my whole career. One of the things that you just mentioned actually is a nice segue into one of my final questions for you. The SNEC, the SNEC is renowned as one of the, it's kind of the CES of our industry, right? And it's huge. It's, uh, it's the largest in the world. So like CES, you can go there and you can see what is coming. You know, as you well know, I have a question that says kind of what's, what do you see on the next frontier? What do you see around the corner? I'd love a bit of a, of a message from the outpost, right? You just came back from SNEC. What do you think? And you just talked to, to Martin Green, Perk, Bifacial. There's so much that we've been talking about for years that's starting to finally take a foothold. I've talked a lot about storage on Suncast. What do you believe is the next frontier market, so to speak? It's certainly from the, from the ivory tower, as it were, of DVGL, you get to see a lot of new technologies. What's around the corner? Yeah, so it, it seemed like... You know, going going back to the corner we've just rounded at Cellfab, we had you know basically four modules. You have your sixty cell mono, sixty cell poly, seventy two cell mono, seventy two cell poly, and that was it. And everyone had basically four modules. And there was a few people with perk, a few people with bifacial, a few people with these shingled cells, a few people with half cut cells. But really, everyone had four module types. Right. And now at SNEC. You know, you go to like a, a Jinko booth or a Trina booth or a Ryzen or these other manufacturers, JA, et cetera, et cetera, and they've got 20 different module types. They have their bifacial, they have their monoperk, their polyperk, they've got shingled cells, they have half-cut cells, they have half-cut bifacial, they have multi-bus bar. I heard, I think you maybe said, or certainly someone said that at SNEC, it seemed like everyone had these half-cut cells, which, you know, up until now, probably the longest running manufacturer who's done those in China is probably Seraphim and in the US certainly is Solaria. Some IP around that, but it seems like everyone as, as is typical for Asia is taking on this new technology. Like that, do you see any of these technologies that are really gaining a foothold and they're going to kind of do away with what we formerly thought about as the way, like the types of modules that you'd logically put into a solar plant? So just to clarify something you said, the half cut cells are are cells literally cut in half. The shingled cells are cells cut in four pieces. So everyone had shingled. Well, a lot of people had shingled and pretty much everyone had half cut. Solaria, they're making a a shingled cell. They're not making a half cut. REC out of Singapore has been one of the longest standing half cut cells that I'm aware of. So just to differentiate. But I think you got to the point of it. There's too many different technologies now. And when you sit down with a module salesperson, and I did this, you know, you ask, well, what's high efficiency? And they say, well, we have our high efficiency mono perk. We have our high efficiency multi perk. We have both of those in half cut cells. And in three months, we're going to have our shingled cell version. It's like, what, well, which one are you trying to sell me? You know, the next thing we're going to see, at least in utility scale and, and DMVGL and, and our testing is going to help usher this transition in to make it bankable would, would be bifacial. Bifacial and single axis trackers is where things are, are going. And, and we're putting together a large bifacial 1500 volt test program so that, you know, right now, if you're a developer and you go to a bank with your bifacial PV sys, they say, well, we're not quite sure on that. We're only going to value the front side production of the project. Yeah. And the backside is all gravy. Well, if you talk to, you know, the Cypress Creeks of the world, that doesn't work for them. They don't want the increased revenue 20 years from now based on the annual bifacial gain. 
they want it now. So until there's bankable bifacial studies to say, here's what the gain is from these exact modules and this exact bill of material coming out of DNVGL's test lab. And, and I'll be honest, there's other people doing that same amount of testing. But here's the data to back it up. As soon as that comes to light and you know there's a couple hundred megawatt bifacial projects and, and we start seeing you know six months of data from it, the utility market is going to switch on a dime to bifacial. Now, whether that's going to be bifacial mono or bifacial poly or bifacial half-cut multi-bus bar, I don't know. <laughs> Back to the 40 SKUs. Would you wager a guess on what the distributed generation or residential market's going to lean towards? Is that more of the shingle? It seems like it, right? Because everybody's going out with it. Uh, we should caveat. We're talking about a cell application inside the encapsulate of a standard module, not a Dow chemical style, like actual shingle. Tesla, solar hollow. Yeah. These are modules where the cells, rather than the cells being soldered together, they're kind of sliced and then they lie on each other with a conductive paste in between. So you don't have the white area between the cells and you don't have the resistance that comes from the soldering process. Right. So you get higher efficiency. And again, you know, I'm sure there's other people in the industry that can explain it a lot better, but I'm a layman and I'm talking to laymen, so that's how I'm going to describe it. So, you know, these manufacturers, you ask them, well, are they shipping shingled modules? Are they shipping multi-bus bar, half-cut bifacials? And really it's like, well, if that guy has it at his booth, we need it at our booth because we don't want to look behind. So I think, you know, half-cut is, is probably the next for the CNI and residential space. That's going to be big. And then we'll see if Shingled comes in following that. Tristan, you and I have so much that we could chat about. We could drag on probably for another hour. I'd like to give our listeners a chance to get on to perhaps some other episodes, but I do want to take an opportunity here to ask you some of the questions that I usually dig into. So Tristan, what's on your nightstand? How do you stay informed? How do you stay ahead of your peers? So I'd love to say there's a stack of prolific books like your, your previous guests. I wrote a lot of those books down with the intention that I'm going to run out and, and, uh, and start reading them. My parents would be horrified to hear that I don't have much time in my life for books at the moment. Right now on my nightstand is my statistics textbook that I <laughs> every night you know plan on reading before bed and it just sits there. But I think you know how I stay informed is through this medium, I, I subscribe to many podcasts. And it's a lot easier to listen to a, a podcast on solar or on energy transition while you're doing the dishes than read a book while doing the dishes. I've tried that and it doesn't work too well. <laughs> That's one thing. And then I subscribe to a lot of these mailing lists from Clean Technica, Green Tech Media, PV Magazine, PV Tech, etc. If I haven't found a few moments throughout the day to catch up on the solar news and the industry news of the day at night, I'm looking on my phone and seeing the headlines and picking out a couple articles and, and reading a couple of them, you know, before I go to bed. Well, what habit or consistent practice has the greatest impact on your life or work? I'm very routine. So, you know, I, I have the same sort of daily schedule when I'm not traveling. You know, I like to have a good understanding of what's in my inbox before I go to bed at night. I, I don't like to have 30 unread emails. If they're unread, it's because I've, I've read them, clicked on them, 
you know, mark them as unread because I got to return to them tomorrow, but not because it's, it's something unknown. Developing a, a method to the madness and having a, a workflow, you know, exercising in the morning, spending time with my family, having work-life balance, all of it is kind of scheduled out so that I don't let things slip. Tristan, before we go, how can people find you? So LinkedIn is probably the best. You know, you can also find me via my DMVGL email address, which I assume you'll link to in the show notes. As you do. If you want to give it here, though, well, that's fine as well. Well, then I'd have to spell out my whole name, which Fair is enough. way too we'll long for yeah. this audio format. Fair enough. We'll link to it in the show notes. Is there any specific way that the, that the Suncast audience can help or any, any message you'd like to convey to the audience? If you're a manufacturer, we'd love to test your products, but probably more appropriate for this audience, if you're a consumer of modules or inverters or or energy storage, DNVGL is here to help de-risk your purchasing. As I mentioned earlier, we have downstream partners and we provide you access to our test reports. They're free of charge. The, The manufacturers pay for this testing. And then once we get approval from them, which we often do, we can freely share those test reports with the industry. You should definitely reach out and I can interpret in layman's terms how to read them and how to determine you know, what's good and what's more risky and help you procure better products, build better assets and increase the value of what you're doing. I'll just tag on to that. Stick around for the next episode with Tristan, which we're going to do these back to back where we'll throw in a Tactical Tuesday on a specific tool that they produce called the Reliability Scorecard. So as we round out this fantastic interview, Tristan, thank you for your time. Let's end today with a bold prediction. Well, one thing do you see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else is tracking? Tristan, what's in your crystal ball? I would say it's that, you know, all these new technologies are coming in, 1500 volt inverters, as we talked, bifacial, half cut cells, et cetera, et cetera. And I think there's going to be quality issues and performance issues that haven't been fully understood yet. Similar to how PID came out of nowhere and snail trails came out of nowhere, et cetera, et cetera. What's in my crystal ball is that we need to make sure that these new technologies are properly vetted. And it may be with different tests than what we've used to test the old technologies to see that they'll work. So I would hate for another PID to wreak havoc on the industry. And hopefully it doesn't happen, but the potential of that is there. And I'm hoping that that people realize that and do their proper due diligence to avoid it. Very well. Well, as the industry learns to vet and deal with these new technologies, we will certainly talk about them here on Suncast. Tristan, thanks for coming on. I appreciate your listenership and advocacy for Suncast. And it's just a joy to get to meet you and other listeners. So really appreciate us digging in today. And uh, thanks for being on Suncast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Nico. This was great. Hey, Tribe, while I still have your attention, I'd like to say thank you again. The fact that you're still listening means you really enjoy the work that we're bringing to life. If that's true, won't you consider becoming a member of the Suncast Energy Tribe? There are two ways you can do that. And they're both outlined on the website at mysuncast.com forward slash member, as well as in episode 86 of Suncast, in case you didn't yet have a chance to listen. A special shout out to Energy Tribe members, Scott Muller and Natalia Flores, 
who have been constant supporters and are true solar warriors. You can join them at mysuncast.com forward slash member. And I look forward to formally welcoming you into the tribe as well, my friend. And thanks again for showing up. It's half the battle.